Today's Skimmed from the Couch is presented by AC Hotels by Marriott. It's a global hotel brand that we are excited about. More on that later. First, let's get into the episode. This is a precept of any decent journalistic partnership, but I have found it particularly true in this one. You can't have any secrets or any spinning, or you just have to be completely honest with one with one another. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Good morning. Happy Friday. We are so excited to be here. Uh, And thank you all for showing up bright and early. Let's get into it. Uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui are the New York Times heavy hitting investigative reporters who broke the story of the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment case. Keep in mind that two years ago when they were working on this, we still had Charlie Rose on the air. You could tune in to see Matt Lauer. Uh, Les Moonves still led CBS. And you could see Mario Batali running his restaurants. Uh, Jody and Megan's work helped cause a domino effect that led to the resurgence of the Me Too movement that we have all seen and heard in the past few years. They went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for public service and have now published their book, She Said, on their reporting of the story and how a movement was launched in its aftermath. It is a highly, highly recommended skim read. We could not be more honored to have these two with us today. Welcome to the couch, Jody and Megan. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. <laughs> So this is being called our generation's All the President's Men, except all the men are women. (laughs) And we want to get into first the two of you as the two women behind bringing this to light. How did you guys get paired up together? Why is this the two of you? So we are both reporters in the investigative unit at the New York Times. But we actually didn't even know each other when we first started working on this investigation. Jody has been at the New York Times for, for many years. She's a total New York Times pro veteran. I had just joined the New York Times in 2016. I was part of the team that covered the presidential election. And then I went on maternity leave. So right as we were sort of coming into the same unit of the New York Times uh, a, a, after I'd finished the presidential race, I went off on maternity leave. And it was actually while I was on maternity leave that Jody started the Weinstein investigation. You know, as she was working to try to figure out how to uh, make some of those first phone calls and try to get women to to open up and talk to her, our editor suggested that she called me because I had actually worked on some of the stories of the women who came forward with allegations against Donald Trump. And so I was basically in the middle of like diapers and bottles when Jody called me one day. And it was really our first proper conversation was her asking for advice. How did you guys learn to trust each other? There was so much involved in building this story. Um, The stakes were hugely high. And as you said, that was the first introductory 
call. Um, talk to us about how your partnership involved and when you guys felt like you could have each other's back. Uh, well, it's a good question because the truth is, you know, Megan and I had met before she went on maternity leave, but I was like, Megan Tui, she doesn't seem that friendly. <laughs> I love that. I was like, I, don't, I, you know, I have a lot of girlfriends at the times, but I don't know if we're going to be close. But I immediately had a respect for her work and I was struck. I had had two children while at the times and I was, I, I was, I think even though I didn't know you, I was very aware of you because Megan was at the front lines of the Trump reporting, not only the Trump reporting about sexual allegations, but also the tax reporting, which as you remember, was a, a really, really big deal. And as I saw her doing this, her belly was getting bigger and bigger. And I have worked enough at the newspaper to know it's hard. You know, this work is really stressful. And all of us remember the kind of Thunderdome quality of the 2016 election. Um, so anyway, we did not know each other, but after that first phone call, I was hoping Megan would work on the story with me. The, we talked about how to engage people in the first, you know, 45 seconds on a phone call. And remember that you're calling potential victims of sexual assault or sexual harassment. And many people are scared to talk to reporters. Even Hollywood stars are very scared to talk to reporters because a lot of celebrities perceive the media as tabloid journalism. They don't have a lot of experience with serious investigative journalism. And Megan suggested a strategy and a kind of pitch that said, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but if we work together and we can do it very discreetly, we may be able to put your pain to some constructive use and help other people. And that line really, really clicked for me. So that was the beginning. And then, uh, you know, as we tell in the book, we were quickly in a very daunting and somewhat absurd reporting situation because we, we were sitting around saying, how do you get Uma Thurman's phone number? How do you get Gwyneth Paltrow's phone number? Um, and so that quickly became a kind of bonding exercise. So much of um, what's in the book talks about just you know, this, this daunting investigation. And it talks about the secrecy that you guys and your editor were under. And there was so much trust that had to be felt between the two of you and obviously a real sense of camaraderie that comes through in the book. Were there times that you disagreed with each other? Did you guys fight? Well, you know, actually it's interesting. When I first came back from maternity leave, I was trying to figure out what to do. Our editor pulled me into the office and was like, okay, you can go back to reporting on Trump or you can go, you can join Jody in this investigation of Harvey Weinstein. And I took a day to deliberate and I consulted with some colleagues and I, had some doubts about whether or not investigative reporting on Trump would have any impact um, by that point. Um, and I also separately had some concerns, uh, or not some concerns, but some questions about the Weinstein investigation. You know, we as investigative reporters are always looking to kind of give voice to the voiceless. And I just, it was hard for me to conceive of these famous actresses as being victims who were in need of the New York Times to help give them voice. And Jody was like, oh my God, Absolutely not. The fact that if these women can be victims of sexual harassment, nobody's immune. And this story is really important to do. So it was sort of, it wasn't our first disagreement, but it was, I think we did bring some different perspectives uh, as we went. One of my favorite anecdotes was in, um, you, I think Jody, it was you that was meeting a source and the source emailed mm -hmm. you and you forwarded it to Megan and said, what's my line? And I laughed out loud because Danielle and I do that all the time. If we're emailing someone important, we're like, I forward it to her. She forwards it to me. We're like, how do I 
respond. And I think anybody that kind of has their work life uh, has those moments. And so how did you immediately know what each other's strengths were and what, what were they? Well, I'll talk about Megan for a second. <laughs> mm. um, this feels so familiar. <laughs> first of all, I mean, you really have a classic investigative reporter background. Megan has put people in jail. Um, <laughs> she's, she, True. <laughs> she's gone after people who have preyed on children. I think that in terms of some of the classic, hardcore investigative reporter skills of interrogation, of getting someone to talk to you who really doesn't have an interest in talking to you, but figuring out which psychological levers to push in order to get them to talk to you, in terms of really maximizing the use of documents and paper trails, I would say I have learned a lot from Megan about all of those things. But what I have also found is just a sense of sheer determination. And also, I think this is a precept of any decent journalistic partnership, but I have found it particularly true in this one. You can't have any secrets or any spinning, or you just have to be completely honest with one with one another. Like, well, we'll it, it, to this day, we'll one of us will come to the other and be like, I made a mistake. I made a tactical mistake. Like, I think I should have done it this way. It went the other way. You have to, in part, because we're trying to be strong for our sources. You have to be very strong when you're confronting somebody like Weinstein. So with each other, you have to allow yourselves to be vulnerable. And I would say with regards to Jody, when I first met her, you know, I was under the impression that I think Jody can come off as very sweet and she is very sweet. Uh, but, you know, she also is a complete bulldog um, underneath. And it's so like looking in a mirror. <laughs> is it, are you are you yeah. sensing some similarities? And so it's <laughs> I, we're, we're together. Um, I thought that might be the case. Um, <laughs> But so, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I mean, you know, I sort of pity anybody who's trying to get in the way of like Jody and the source that she's pursuing or the information that she's seeking out. It's marvelous, actually, to see sort of the secret surprise determination that can come out in her. We'll get back into the episode in a minute, but first let's talk about what we did this summer. We crisscrossed the country on our book tour, which was the most fun we've ever had and one of the most exhausting things we've ever done. Different hotel every night. and So many planes, trains, <laughs> automobiles. Lucky for us, thinking on the bright side, we realized what a big difference a great hotel can make and what we're looking for when we go to a hotel, which is why we are so excited to partner with AC Hotels. AC Hotels by Marriott is catching on. In the U.S., they have over 45 locations in cultural hubs, and they're going to double that soon. And then they're going into international expansion. I love that they have um, really every guest need you could possibly have in mind. Um, my favorite is just where the outlets are in the room. Sounds small, but it's the most important thing for a business traveler. It makes a huge difference. Visit AC Hotels at achotels.marriott.com to learn more. So we want to go into the beginning of the Weinstein investigation. Take us back, um, especially for an audience that hasn't yet gotten the opportunity to go through the book as it just came out. Go get it. Um, how did it start? 
what was that initial spark? What was the tip that put you onto this? Well, we should say that it came because of the Times' commitment to sexual harassment reporting. How many people here remember the Bill O'Reilly story? Okay, good. So I know it seems like a lot of sexual harassment stories ago, but it was a really... (laughs) It was a really, really critical, important one because the Times used the fact that Bill O'Reilly had paid a lot of money. It turns out Bill O'Reilly and Fox paid $45 million to women over the years to silence their claims. With the first story, they weren't yet at that number. They were at a lower number. But the Times basically exposed the fact that O'Reilly and Fox had covered up these allegations. And the astonishing thing is that Bill O'Reilly lost his job because of that. And I mean... For Bill O'Reilly, one of the most powerful people in media, to lose a job over that, it was shocking. And the Times asked a question that now seems quaint, which is, are there other powerful men in American life who have covered up abuse towards women, and how can we do those stories? So I got a tip from Shauna Thomas from an organization called Ultraviolet, a kind of anti-rape activist organization, that Rose McGowan was writing a book about Harvey Weinstein and that we should generally look into the whole Harvey Weinstein situation. And I think I had kind of heard the rumors in passing over the years. So my first step was, and this is the first scene of the book, Um, So I email Rose McGowan asking to talk. You know what she says? She says, I won't talk to you because the New York Times is a sexist organization. And so I had to convince her, sort of, you know, how to just get on the phone that one time. And that was the beginning of the investigation. One of the things that became clear in the book is how many other people had tried to tackle this story before. And most of the people that you mentioned, they were all men. What was it about you guys that you think made you successful? You know, I think it's important to point out that there have been a lot of changes in the media landscape um, in recent years, as you guys well know. Uh, There have been a lot of news organizations that have been gutted and don't have the resources and staff to do the type of investigations that, that sort of more news organizations were able to pull off. So I think that, you know, I think that there's no question that the fact that the New York Times was willing to put, uh, you know, two full-time investigative reporters on this story and also give us the time and the resources to do this, this story took us months. We were two or three months into the investigation when our editor took us out for glasses of wine one night and we spelled out all of the allegations and all of the information that we had gathered. And she said, okay, well, is anybody on the record? And we said, no. And she said, well, you don't have a story. That was three months into our investigation. And luckily, over the next two months, we were able to get people on the record and nail more evidence. But we were so fortunate enough to have this entire institution kind of at our backs. And there were people, we knocked on doors and we talked to women who had tried to work with other journalists in the past, and they were really cynical. They said, listen, why should I work with you guys? I actually talked to a reporter five years ago or six years ago, and the stories went nowhere. And we had to say, like, listen, we can't, we can't tell you what happened in those scenarios, but we, we, we're coming to you. We're knocking on your door with the whole support of the New York Times behind us. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. So in the book, you write a lot about the weight of getting people on the record. And, you know, there's this great moment when Ashley Judd is the first actress that is like, okay, I'm ready. And you have two former Miramax employees. How did you deal with the weight of knowing that you had to protect what could be really negative repercussions for women that were putting stories that 
they've been holding on to for years or tried to give to other people and never saw the light of day for years? It's a great question. It's really the tension of this work because it's our job to persuade people to go on the record. And we genuinely believe that it's a good thing to do. We believe that it's in the public service. We believe that facts drive social change. We believe that you can't solve a problem you can't see, but it's also really unfair because it is not fair that it's women's jobs to do this work and tell these stories. These women did nothing to get harassed and assaulted. So why should they have to go through a public ordeal all of these years later in order to try to solve this problem or bring, you know, such and such person to account? So, you know, there's a saying that our editor, Rebecca Corbett, has. She says the answer is always more reporting. And I think that's true in this case as well, because the best thing we could do to protect our sources ultimately was to build a mountain of evidence that they could stand on. So that first Harvey Weinstein story only had two women on the record, but it had 25 years of allegations. We were able to obtain human resources records from the company. We had the legal and financial trail of settlements. We had other former Miramax employees on the record saying, yeah, I can admit now that this was a huge problem at this company. And also there was the pattern. It's not only that there were a lot of allegations, but they were all the same. The stories from 1990 were alarmingly similar to the stories from 2015. So it added up to a real pattern of alleged predation. But believe me, we had our heart in our throats. Laura Madden, one of the first two women to go on the record, was actually facing a mastectomy and reconstructive surgery right as she went on the record. We were very worried about her. One of the things that comes up in the reporting is that obviously there were a lot of men on the board around Weinstein that protected him. There were also a lot of women that come off as very complicit in covering this up. How did you guys think about that when you were getting people to go on the record, when you were putting this story together? Well, it really was one of the most surprising things that we learned after that initial story, you know, that we're able to now put in the book. Um, the sort of surprising figures who helped bring the truth to light and the surprising figures who helped cover it up. There was this remarkable thing that happened in 2015, which is that an Italian model had showed up for a work meeting at Harvey Weinstein's office. And within hours of leaving, she went to the police and reported that he had sexually abused her, tried to sexually abuse her. And she submitted to, she, you know, the police worked with her. She wore a wire. Um, they got basically a confession from Weinstein on this recording, and ultimately the prosecutors did not bring charges. And so I was like, what happened there? It was a real mystery to me, and I was trying to pursue it. And so in the summer of 2017, I called this woman Linda Fairstein, who was like one of the former kind of massive sex crimes prosecutors here in New York. But at the time, I had done a lot of sex crimes reporting in Chicago and knew and really saw her as one of the biggest victims' rights advocates and somebody who was totally committed to this cause. And so I called her and I said, do you know what happened in this case? Could you introduce me to the current sex crimes prosecutor? And she basically turned gruff on the phone and was like, there's nothing to see there. Don't go down that path. That allegation was totally unfounded. And lo and behold, uh, you know, several months later, when we were at the final stretch of our story, Harvey Weinstein barged into the New York Times with some high profile lawyers by his side, including Linda Fairstein. So she had actually consulted with him on that case in 2015. She was now working with him in the final hour as he was trying to beat back our investigation. And it was this interesting moment where I sort of shook Linda Fairstein's hand and I was like, 
Linda, you didn't tell me that you'd worked with Harvey Weinstein. And she said later, well, you didn't ask. And I just thought that was, you know, that that was pretty remarkable. And she was one of several figures. I mean, Lisa Bloom is one of the most famed uh, feminist attorneys in the country. And in 2016, she crossed over to the other side to work for Weinstein. And we've obtained all these confidential records in which she spelled out all of the underhanded tactics she was going to use to help him undermine his accusers. That was a great part of the book. When you guys get it, reading the emails from Lisa Bloom that they've printed about the strategy. Really interesting to look at after seeing all of this unfold. There are two things that I really want to give you guys a, a chance to talk about that struck us when we read it and we're talking about it after. There were kind of two lines. Um, one was, and I'm paraphrasing this, but Lance Marov from uh, WPP, who was on the board, uh, had this quote in the book that really just struck out to me. And it was something along the lines of, are you guys sure that you know this isn't just the case of basically women who are sleeping their way into a better job or faster job? Is that something that was a sentiment that you guys came up against a lot? Absolutely. I think there were two category errors. Look, when we look back at the moral catastrophe that is the Harvey Weinstein story, and we say, how could something like this have happened? Or how could the Jeffrey Epstein story have happened for that matter? On the one hand, we're focusing on the alleged perpetrators, but on the other hand, there are much wider questions for all of us, right? If you see wrongdoing in the workplace, will you be able to identify it? Will you do something, et cetera, et cetera? And I'd say in the Weinstein story, people made two category errors at least. One is that person after person classified whatever Harvey Weinstein was doing with women as extramarital affairs. That's how his brother often thought of it. His brother thought of it as sex addiction, as he later told Megan, and lots of other people wrote it off that way. They saw it as, oh, the boss is having an extramarital affair. I don't want to know about that. They didn't think this is sexual harassment if it's occurring in the workplace, and it may even be sexual assault. And then I think the other error they made is I'll be blunt. I think that there was a stereotype that actresses were sluts and that they were willing to do anything for a part. Um, and the casting couch, by the way, was such an accepted part of Hollywood that there was an actual casting couch statue, right? You know those famous Chinese theaters in LA, like right where they have those movie premieres? There was an actual casting couch like thing that you could visit. And it was a completely accepted part of the business, which is not to say that, you know, the Mayrov version like had never been correct. We don't know, like it's possible that actresses approached Harvey Weinstein wanting to get movie roles, you know, through some sort of sex, but that's not what we had documented. What we had documented was behavior that had ethically uh, and sometimes physically crossed a line. The other category it seemed to come up a lot was the idea that nothing bad could have happened because these women kept coming back to him both assistants that had come back to work for the Weinstein Company and actresses that had, you know, stayed in his orbit. I think that's another theme that comes up a lot in the book. Yeah, and I think that this applies to women, you know, people who have been victims of sexual harassment outside of Hollywood. I mean, across the country in all different types of industries. I mean, it is such a painful crossroads when you experience something like this in the workplace. And I think that there were a lot of women who felt like they didn't want to be shunned from the industry. Harvey Weinstein was the most powerful broker in Hollywood. He could make or break your career. But it's not just him and it's not just Hollywood that sometimes women feel like that they have to stay in their position 
transitioner, they have to stay in the workplace in their current job, even after something like this happens. We had a really awesome summer. We got to travel around the country meeting you guys with the How to Skim Your Life Night Out book tour. And one of the most thoughtful things that we've received from people who have supported the company is a framed picture of when we hit the New York Times bestseller list at number one. Humble brag moment. Honestly, marking that moment is something we will have forever. And thankfully, Framebridge made it happen. So um, we cannot recommend them enough. So easy. You just go to framebridge.com. You upload your photo. Or if you have a physical piece, you can have them send you packaging. So you can just send it to them safely in the mail. Then you can preview the item online in any frame style. If you're not sure what frame style you like, they have an amazing expert team. And it is just so much cheaper than going to a framing store. And the quality is incredible. If you haven't used FrameBridge yet, what are you waiting for? Get started today. Go to FrameBridge.com and use promo code SKIM to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to FrameBridge.com promo code SKIM, S-K-I-M-M. That is framebridge.com, promo code SKIM. I want to switch gears and talk about the two of you actually getting this done. Uh, I don't often read acknowledgement sections in books, but I read yours twice. (laughs) And I was struck by how you clearly had an amazing support system. Megan, you were coming right off of maternity leave. You had a newborn baby at home when all of this was going on. I want to talk a little bit about how you were able to stay sane through all of this <laughs> and also talk a little bit, Megan, specifically for you. Did you feel pressure to come back from maternity leave early? Walk us through what that was like mm-hmm. for our listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, I had actually sort of suffered depression during my maternity leave um, and I had suffered postpartum depression or anxiety. I'm not sure exactly what it was. By the time I came back to the office, I had sort of sought out help and was uh, back on track and feeling really strong and really connected to my daughter. I will confess that there was a part of me that was just actually really excited to come back to work because I wasn't sure. I was still trying to figure out how to be a mom and that that had felt so scary and so overwhelming. So to step back into the newsroom and to start on an investigation like this in which you have such a strong sense of purpose to sort of resume my investigative tools and some of my reporting strengths, I was just thrilled to be able to do that. We want to hear your take on after the Weinstein investigation came out. You talk about seeing friends and family start to post with the hashtag MeToo. Your work helped to launch this phase of the MeToo movement. The stories in this book, both about Weinstein and Kavanaugh, which is a big part of the reporting in here, um, they really solidified that moment. Did you have any idea of the cultural impact that your work would have when you were putting it together? No, not at all. One of the ways you make a story better is you stress test it and internally um, at the times we're often asking very skeptical questions about our own stories in order to, you know, sort of find the weak spots. So one of our beloved editors, Matt Prudy, said several times before the story was published, he said, Harvey Weinstein is not that famous. And he was right. He was right because here we had just published the Bill O'Reilly story. He was really famous and that had enormous impact. But we didn't necessarily see the same thing 
coming from Weinstein. What I did feel from very early on was that there was an almost nuclear power in talking to the actresses. And that's because these actresses, they kind of write our scripts for what femininity is, right? You grow up, you go to the movies and you see Ashley Judd or Gwyneth Paltrow or Salma Hayek. And, you know, they, they sort of like teach us how to look and how to flirt. And there are all these romance scenes we watch on screen, even before we're old enough to have romances ourselves. And I just thought, if these stories are true, and if it's true that Harvey Weinstein menaced basically an entire generation, or maybe even more than one generation of actresses, then that means that like 30 years of our pop culture shared history is somehow corrupt and that all of these images we've lived our lives by, that there's a much darker reality behind them. That was part of the pull of the story for me. But but I thought, well, maybe if we land the story, somebody will make one joke at the Oscars next year. We never imagined the larger cultural impact. One of the things I think many of us have heard and seen even in the workplace is this idea of the male grievance, which you touch on in the book, which is you can't say anything these days or you have to be so careful at work. What is your reaction when you hear stuff like that now? Well, one of the things, you know, our book doesn't stop with the Weinstein story. It really pushes into the year that followed. And as the Me Too movement took off in earnest, I mean, we were writing this book and reporting this book as that was happening, as things were getting more complicated. And for those who haven't read it yet, um, what you're referring to is the Kavanaugh hearings. We were observing, we were working out of this office in Brooklyn. So we weren't in the newsroom, but we were still following the news and all of the changes that were swirling around and some of the growing confusion and some of these complicated questions of fairness and due process. And when Christine Blasey Ford, when her allegation against Brett Kavanaugh surfaced and that story played out as one of the most high profile kind of Me Too stories of that time period, we went to work on that. We thought, oh my goodness, we've got to, this really encompasses so many of the questions about What types of behaviors are under scrutiny? Are we just talking about rape and well-established sexual harassment? You know, are we talking about other types of behaviors? You know, is there a process in place by which people can make complaints and these complaints can be fairly vetted? Uh, And what does like accountability look like? And once we were able to piece together the behind the scenes story of her private path to testifying, we realized it was so much more complicated than anybody knew and that it would be a good way to start to allow readers to probe some of these tough questions picking up right where you left off. Your investigations with Weinstein led to, you know, his trial starting January. And then you had Christine Blasey Ford come forward and many people chose not to believe her. What did that say to you guys at the end when you were thinking about the societal and cultural impacts of what you had spent so many years working on? We wanted to write about the Christine Blasey Ford Essentially, what we tell in the book is her is the behind-the-scenes story of the testimony that all of us saw last September, which was so much more complicated than what we all saw in public. And we wanted to write about it because we realized, you know, when we started this book, we didn't know how it was going to end. But then when the Kavanaugh stuff happened, we realized that we had to do justice to how controversial and how polarizing Me Too had become. We couldn't just end with like the triumphant scene, you know, of us publishing the Harvey Weinstein story. 
And what we have found in our reporting across the board, not just with the Blasey Ford story, but with reporting on low-income workers, with reporting on corporations, uh, really in every field, is that there's a mounting sense of unfairness on both sides because victims feel like the system is totally broken, you know, still completely unequipped to deliver the prevention and the justice that people need. And then the accused also feel like the systems and processes are kind of rigged against them. And what we see in general is that there are three questions about Me Too that are totally unresolved. The first is, what is the scope of behaviors that's under examination? Are we only talking about severe allegations of sexual assault, sexual harassment, or are we also talking about bad dates, uh, bra snapping in middle school hallways, um, what's depicted in movies, et cetera, et cetera. The second question is, how do we get to the truth? What are the tools that all of us use to examine these claims and decide what really happened? And then the third is, what does accountability look like? What measures do we take when we decide that somebody's really done something wrong? All three of those questions are completely undecided and they often get very mixed up with each other. And what we found with the Kavanaugh situation is that it epitomized all of that confusion. And that's why we wanted to write about it. And, you know, this fall marks the three-year anniversary of the Access Hollywood tape, the two-year anniversary of Breaking the Weinstein Story, and the one-year anniversary of Christine Blasey Ford testifying. And so the very last thing that we did for our reporting of this book was to hold a group interview with women who were at the heart of all three of those stories. Uh, so there was Rachel Crooks, who was one of the first women who came forward with an allegation against Trump, somebody who I had worked with in 2016. And if you had told me in 2016 that we we would be sitting in the same room as Ashley Judd and Laura Madden and Gwyneth Paltrow, some of these first women to go on the record against Weinstein, and also with Christine Blasey Ford, who also participated in this interview, I would not have believed it. It was It's a remarkable chapter. Yeah. I would encourage everyone to read. <laughs> yeah. So as we mentioned, Weinstein trial is going to pick up. You just talked about the years of moments and anniversaries leading up to this. He's got a new lawyer. What are you guys watching for? So we can't tell you whether or not Harvey Weinstein will be convicted or not. The trial is supposed to start January 6th. There are a lot of questions, both about the prosecution and the defense in this case. In the defense, Weinstein has changed legal teams several times in a way that's really unusual. He's claimed that these were actually consensual relationships, and he says he has receipts. On the prosecution side, the charges have actually changed a couple of times. And also, we should say in general, sex crimes are very hard to prosecute. And a lot of the allegations, prosecutors only have a certain amount to work with because, first of all, a lot of the allegations against Weinstein are about sexual harassment. This is confusing, but it's important. Sexual harassment is illegal, but it's illegal under civil law. You can't throw somebody in jail for sexual harassment. You can only basically sue them. So prosecutors, they can't work with sexual harassment cases, right? They can't work with the assault cases that are beyond the statute of limitations in New York. So that leaves them with a couple of women's stories that this whole thing is based upon. And then to make matters uh, even less certain at this point, 
We don't know who one of the key victims even is. There's a woman with a rape allegation who's very much at the center of the case, but she's never been identified. She hasn't come forward to journalists. We haven't talked to her, et cetera, et cetera. All of which means that this trial is just looking to us like kind of an unstable proposition. Like it, like we don't know what direction it's going to go in and we're not willing to draw any conclusions and about what's going to happen. And we think, it, we think it would be a mistake for anybody to view this trial as the final kind of conclusion of Harvey Weinstein's innocence or guilt. Like it, that would it, be a huge mistake. It's part of why we wanted to write our book because we said, you know, we wrote this book knowing that he was going to go to trial and we said, we don't know what's going to happen in this courtroom, but we've heard and documented and researched these women's stories and we want to create a lasting record of his legacy as, as someone who used work to terrify and coerce women, allegedly. So we're going to move quickly to audience <laughs> questions. Uh, but I do want to ask you one last thing, which is the back of your book is very powerful. And uh, I, again, I don't often pay attention and read the back of a book or acknowledgments. I did for yours. Uh, and Basically, it is a lot of different quotes from women, and rather than attributing them to anyone individually, they all say, she said. The last line in your acknowledgments is a note to your daughters and to all of us about what type of workplace and relationships that we all deserve. These are very intentional decisions on your part. What is the call to action for those who are picking up this book or listening to our podcast today? What, what are you asking us to, to take from this? Well, a couple things. One, I think to go back to the question of how complicated and confusing Me Too has become, we really want to plunge readers into the facts and into the front lines of some of the stories and individuals who helped brought about this massive cultural shift. We also wanted to highlight I, you know, everybody by now knows the the names of some of the people who came forward, Ashley Judd, Laura Madden, Gwyneth Paltrow. But in this book, we really go into the backstories of these remarkable women and the wrenching decisions that they faced behind the scenes as they were deciding whether or not to come forward. And so I think that we really want them to come away knowing the true stories of some of the most significant she saids of the last two years. So we're going to go into Q&As. Uh, this one is from Estelle. Um, and I'm sure she's not the only one here that wants this question. What advice would you give to a college student who wants to be a journalist? That is our favorite question. Okay, Estelle, a few things. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, definitely do it. No disrespect to the wide variety of fields uh, represented here, but I think one of the biggest surprises to me about getting into journalism was just how thrilling it is on a day-to-day basis, how much of human experience you get to observe and understand, you know, the, the chance to both share these intimate moments with strangers and also kind of participate in the sweep of national and world events is just so precious. So I just want to support you in your instincts. Um, number two, I would say, so any college journalism experience you can get is basically great. It does, don't worry about the sort of brand name of the publication. Just worry about doing things, worry about reporting, wor worry about learning to work in audio. Um, I, I think, I think, I think just doing the work, beginning to generate some clips, um, is, is important. Number three, don't get discouraged. I was kicked 
off my college newspaper. Why? (laughs) I'm going to try to make this very short. I wrote a column um, that somebody in my class didn't like, and he wrote this awful column that I can't believe they they printed not only calling me a suck up but using like sexually derogatory oh language gosh, cool. to say that I was like I, and also racially like well, I where think, is that guy now look at you here <laughs> exactly anyway he was a classmate of mine who I'd never met at Columbia so I called him and I emailed him just a few times to ask him like why he had written those things he accused me of stalking him. <laughs> By the way, asking questions and going up to people is what journalists do. And the college editors, who, to be fair, were like, you know, 19 and a half years old or something. uh, They were like, we're just kicking you both off the newspaper because I think they didn't know what to do with the situation. So Columbia is very... That's like your pretty woman moment, like big mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when she she told me this story, I was like, oh my God, it took you a long time to tell me that story. And I was like... Oh, it's like, you know, my partner basically got kicked <laughs> off our college paper for being too aggressive. Like, it's <laughs> crazy. Columbia hates when I tell this story. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and so, and so, so anyway, just, just to finish first, I'll, so don't give up because think of, you know, I could have slunk away and said journalism isn't for me, but I did yes. not. Okay. Um, this one, it says just from a skimmer in the audience today, if you could ask Weinstein something now, what would you ask? Well, (laughs) we have asked Harvey Weinstein many, many questions uh, going back to uh, right before we broke the initial story. I mean, people, there's a, I think sometimes people have this sort of mistaken idea that when we do these stories, they just, we kind of push them into the paper without going to the subject for response. And as we detail in the book, there was this insane 48-hour period leading up to the publication of our story in which we had gone to Weinstein and presented all of our findings, absolutely every single thing we were going to say about him in the story, and and asked him to respond. You know, what, you know, and is there anything else you'd like to say, Harvey, in the face of all these allegations we're going to publish? And it was the beginning of an in- crazy wild ride, which included Harvey basically barging into the New York Times at one point with his high-powered lawyers by his side trying to smear the accusers. Um, um, and when, when it came time to, to publish our book, we also went to him for comments saying, these are all of the things we're going to say about you. So in fact, you know, I think that my question would, to Harvey would be like, you know, if and when you're ready to have, sit down and have an in-depth interview, you know where to find us. <laughs> You've got our email addresses. You've got our phone numbers. Yes. Well, Jody, Megan, thank you. Um, this was such a treat for, for us personally and to share this uh, with our audience today. And thank you for all of your work that you have done. Uh, to everyone here, she said it's out on stands. Go get it. Uh, it is a phenomenal read. And uh, thank you, guys. Everyone have a great day. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 